Hello and welcome back to Grow Series, an MCAT review podcast. So in this episode, we're going to continue with foundational concept seven of the psychology and sociology part of the MCAT. And unlike the previous episodes where we went super deep into discussions of the nervous system, here it's going to be a lot more about the theories and the vocab. So in this episode, you know, I'll start off with personality, then I'm going to shift into talking about mental disorders, you know, what we consider normal, what we consider different. Then we'll get into social psychology for a bit and we'll stay there for a while. We'll discuss iconic psychological studies like the Stanford Prison Experiment and all those iconic studies. And after that, we're going to end with conformity and obedience. And as I mentioned on previous episodes, I'm going to review over topics. So it means I won't go over all the nitty gritty, but I'm going to give you the bulk of the content. So without further ado, let's just jump right into this episode. All right, personality. We literally use this all the time. It makes us who we are. Personalities are pretty cool, right? Right. All right, there's a ton of different theories on personalities, and sadly, you don't only have to know every theory, but you also got to know every psychologist who is involved with the theories. But honestly, it isn't as bad as it seems. You know, after a while, you start noticing trends, like, for example, whenever Skinner is involved, you know, it has to do with operant conditioning. Whenever Freud is involved, you know, it has to do with unconscious thoughts, stuff like that. Every psychology, they have their core beliefs that you need to notice, and then if they ever come up again, you can kind of apply those to whatever the question is talking about. So the six theories that you need to know that are correlated with personality are the number one, psychoanalytic theory, two, the humanistic theory, three, the biological theory, four, the behaviorist theory, five, the trait theory, and lastly, the social cognitive theory. And the really important one you need to know here is the social cognitive theory, but we'll save that one for last. All right, so the first one is the psychoanalytic theory. And if I could define this in one word, it's Freud. So the psychoanalytic theory says personality is shaped by unconscious thoughts, feelings, and past memories. And there is the thought that there are two instinctual drives that motivate us, libido and death instinct. And no, not that type of libido that you're thinking of. This libido means motivation for survival, whereas the death instinct is the opposite. It's the unconscious belief that you want to die and kill others too. So really depressing. I don't know why I'm so energetic about it. But, you know, a few minutes in, we're into some dark stuff already. But yeah, the psychoanalytic theory, it's focused on two motivations for behavior. Libido, which is your yearning to live, and death instinct, which is your unconscious yearning for aggression. So Freud, as you can see, is defined by his thoughts of conscious and unconscious beliefs. Freud thought your consciousness is defined in three parts of an iceberg. The id, the ego, and the superego. So the id, just literally the letters I and D, It's the deep bottom part of the iceberg. It's all about unconscious gratification, specifically immediate gratification. So the id, it's the, you know, the bottom of the iceberg. You can't see it. It's immediate gratification and it's unconscious gratification. The ego, the other part of Freud's theory, that's involved with unconscious thought, but also some conscious thought too. And it seeks long-term gratification. So the id is short-term immediate gratification and the ego is long-term gratification And it doesn't only involve unconscious thoughts like the id. Lastly is the superego. And this isn't developed immediately at birth. It actually takes a few years for it to come. But the superego is just a fancy way to say your moral conscience. But don't be confused. Just because the superego is your moral conscience, it doesn't mean the unconscious beliefs aren't also involved. The superego involves both conscious and unconscious beliefs. So basically just know that the id is the only true unconscious one. It's kind of like the crazy one. It's probably Freud's favorite because he's all about those unconscious stuff. But the ego is long-term gratification and the superego is your moral conscious. So Freud assumed there's a constant three-headed tug of war going on between the id, the ego, and the superego. And, you know, the superego might be looking at moral demands while the id is trying to go for that short-term gratification. And at times, a conflict leads to a Freudian slip, which is when you say something unintentionally that actually uncovers what you're subconsciously thinking of. So basically, a Freudian slip is when you say one thing, but you mean a mother. I mean another. All right, that was a really lame joke. I'm sorry. I just had to do it. So we kind of got a bit off topic there. We went really deep into the Freudian stuff. But basically, the psychoanalytic theory of personality, it's just about libido and death instinct. The humanistic theory, it's a little happier. It was pioneered by this guy named Carl Rogers, and he thought of humans as inherently good. So the pillar that Rogers emphasized was self-actualization, and that is an innate drive to make yourself better. And he said that, you know, if there's no obstacles, then you inherently just become a better person every single day. 
So the humanistic theory, just think of humanistic, it thinks of humans as better. It's kind of like the opposite of psychoanalytic in a way. You know, Carl Rogers was saying that we consciously change ourselves to change our future. You know, he seems like a good dude. He says we constantly get better. Psychoanalytic, you know, with the mention of the id, which is that like untamed crazy side, that's like a little bit more distant from the humanistic theory. So after Carl Rogers made this theory, Maslow carried it forward, especially with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which we covered previously. If you remember, the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs was self-actualization. And, you know, that kind of makes sense, right? Once we get all the obstacles out of the way, we can finally focus on improving ourselves to the highest degree possible. So, you know, I like the humanistic theory. It's pretty positive. So the psychoanalytic and humanistic, they're kind of opposites in some ways. The psychoanalytic with the whole death instinct and libido, it kind of makes it sound like humans are just inherently bad. And Carl Rogers with the humanistic theory, he thought humans were good. Let's move on to the biological theory. So the biological theory, it's easy to remember. I mean, the words psychoanalytic and humanistic don't really key you into the meaning of the theory as obviously as the biological theory, which thinks personality is determined by your surprise biology, specifically your gene. Basically, you are who you are because of who your parents were. So the staple of nature versus nurture debates are twin studies, because if they have the same genetic makeup, then any differences are due to the environment, right? Well, twin studies really tell us that nature carries a lot of weight. You know, twins have a lot of similar traits, even if they're raised separately. You know, if one twin is quick to anger, then the other is too. If one is a natural leader, then the other usually is too. If one is a rule follower, the other, surprise, usually is too. Genetics really tells us a lot about our personality, but it doesn't tell us everything. Some traits are really genetically linked and others aren't, but most of the time, personality traits need an environmental trigger. So if there's one twin and he was raised in an environment of super angry people and another twin that was raised in an environment of amazingly kind people, who's going to be the angrier person as an adult? That's right, the one raised by angry people. We talked about the environmental trigger in a past episode, but it's a really important topic and it's a key in the biological theory of personality. So we can agree that the psychoanalytic and the humanistic are like the yin and yang and that the psychoanalytic theory is saying humans are inherently walking the line between survival and killing, which is pretty dark. Meanwhile, the humanistic is saying humans are inherently good and we will progress to be good without obstacles in our way. Well, the yin of the biological theory also has its yang, and that's the behaviorist theory. If the biological theory is nature, then the behaviorist theory is all about nurture. So the behaviorist theory, it's a complete swing the other way. It says that we're actually a clean slate when we're born and we develop based on our environment. Skinner and Pavlov are two huge psychologists that back this theory up, and they're pretty recognizable. So both have to do with conditioning. So Skinner was all about operant conditioning basically saying that our behaviors is upscaled and downscaled based on rewards and punishments. So Skinner fits the behaviors theory because basically he thinks our personality depends on rewards and punishments. You know, nothing genetic in there. Pavlov is known for his Pavlov's dog experiment. It's pretty famous, but if you don't know, basically you put two stimuli to correlate a reaction. One stimuli naturally produces the reaction and another stimuli has no connection to the previous stimuli. So for Pavlov's dog, the presence of food would lead to the dog to salivate. But if we rung a bell every single time we brought food, then the dog would start salivating at the bell. So the, the bell had no correlation, you know, no natural response to the dog getting hungry. But if we connect them every single time, the dog starts getting hungry at the bell. He starts salivating at the bell. So similar to pre-meds, you know, thinking about the MCAT gets you sad, but if every time I mention the MCAT, I also talk about like, I don't know, like ice cream or something, then slowly but surely you'll start getting sad at the thought of ice cream. And honestly, who wants that, right? So I don't know why I went on that tangent, but yeah, the behaviors theory, it's all about conditioning and nurturing leading to your personality. So we went through two pairs of personality theories, the psychoanalytic and the humanistic and the biological and the behaviorist. So now we got two left, the trait theory and the social cognitive theory. So the trait theory thinks that a personality trait is what moves you to behave a certain way. So unlike the other theories, which are more or less about how behavior explains personality, the trait theory of personality explains how your personality traits lead to behavior. So it's kind of flipped. So the trait theory is actually so simple, it kind of doesn't make sense. If a person is just naturally outgoing, 
then they lead to outgoing behavior. If a person has a personality trait of being happy, then they produce behavior that makes them happy. And you know, that really kind of sums it up. But there's two types of traits to take into account, surface traits and source traits. So the name kind of gives the meaning away. Surface traits are one you can notice on the surface. They're obvious and you can see them from someone's behavior. Source traits are fewer and more abstract and they're the root of your uh, surface traits. So what does that even mean, right? Well, a surface trait would be like being quiet, disliking crowds, being shy. But the source trait that is the root of all those surface behaviors is introversion. So basically, you being all quiet and, you know, shy, those are surface traits. But the reason you're that way is your source trait, which is being introverted. The last theory of personality that is the most important to know by far is the social cognitive theory. And paired with the social cognitive theory is one of the most iconic psychological experiments, the Bobo doll experiment. So the social cognitive theory essentially says your behavior changes when you interact with your environment. So think about that cognitive part as your brain and the social part as the environment. Social cognitive. So you interacting with the environment is the social cognitive theory. So this theory says behavior depends on how you interact with your environment Emphasis on the you part, your decisions and your actions change the environment and your behavior. So the main advice I can give for this is don't confuse it with the behaviorism theory. The behaviorism theory is all about how the environment you are in shapes you entirely. The social cognitive theory talks about cognition, how you shape the environment and that shapes your behavior. So the social cognitive theory is all about social learning. But what is that? Well, social learning, it's also called vicarious learning or observational learning. You watch, you imitate, and finally you learn. And biology proves this is true because of the fact that we have these things called mirror neurons, which fire when you see someone doing the same action you're doing or trying to do. So let's say someone is trying to learn a TikTok dance and they keep watching it on repeat while they do the dance themselves. Their mirror neurons are firing at the same time that their respect in my eyes is dropping. So now an experiment that pairs with the social cognitive theory is the Bobo doll experiment. So if the social cognitive theory is peanut butter, the Bobo doll experiment is jelly. It was made by my boy, Albert Bandura, and it's used a lot when people talk about video games. You know, when people say Call of Duty and Fortnite are evil and they make kids violent, this is usually what's linked. Basically what happened in the experiment was there's this big blow up doll that was chilling in a room and some kids doing arts and crafts in the same room. All of a sudden, this man comes in, he starts going ham on the Bobo doll, and all the kids are like, uh, like what, what is going on? As he pummeled the blow-up doll for like 10 minutes. Finally, he left, and the researchers gave the kids a puzzle that was actually literally impossible to solve, so that when they got frustrated, they could do the activity that they saw being done. That activity being abusing an inanimate object. You know, and a ton of kids actually went and they started punching the doll, which shows that we learn from observing. So they did a second experiment after that and they wanted to see if, okay, maybe, you know, watching a video of someone beat up a Bobo doll is different than seeing it in person. And they were right in a sense, it is different. So after watching a video of the man pummel a Bobo doll, not as many kids went to beat up the blow up doll. But when the researchers bribed the kids with candy, then they were able to do it. So this taught an important lesson. Not only do we learn from watching, but even if we don't perform it, it doesn't mean we didn't learn. So the kids, even though they didn't go and they started, you know, beating it up after they saw the video, they still learned it, but they just needed an incentive to go ahead and, you know, start doing it. So we've talked about psychoanalytic, humanistic, biological, behaviorist, and trait theory. And then we concluded with the social cognitive theory, which, uh, like I said, was that your behavior changes when you interact with your environment. But I want to go back to traits because it's important to know all the details regarding personality traits before we leave this topic and get to mental disorders. So there's a guy named Gordon Alport. He made a long list of descriptive words for traits, and he came out with three basic categories to define those words, cardinal, central, and secondary. So cardinal traits are the top of the pecking order. They're the head honcho, most important, and they're the core traits that influence everything else. Central traits are the second rung of the ladder, and they're things like honesty, sociability, shyness, etc. They're less dominant than cardinal, but they're still important. Secondary traits are at the bottom of the ranking. They're honestly more like preferences, more than personality traits. So if someone isn't a fan of the texture of meat, that's a secondary trait, but it doesn't make up their core personality. It's just something they prefer. So we go cardinal at the top, central in the middle, and secondary at the end. 
So there's no real distinctive way to remember that Alport made a, a list of cardinal, central, and secondary. Just know his name was Alport, like Alport. So think about three different ports. Each was have their own set of ideas, you know, cardinal, central, and secondary. The next one is Cattell. He thought that there were 16 personality traits and therefore made the 16 PF, which is kind of like a personality quiz questionnaire thing. I mean, honestly, not really that high yield, so... I'm not going to make an acronym or a, a mnemonic to remember him. The next one is Hans Eysenck, and he agreed with Alport in the fact that we have three dimensions of personality, but where Alport thought that some people had some cardinal traits and other people didn't, you know, some people had some central traits and other people didn't, etc. Hans Eysenck thought something different. He thought everyone had the three traits of his, but they just expressed them in different degrees. So those three traits are extroversion, neuroticism, and psychoticism. So extroversion, you probably heard a lot. It means how much you connect with the outside world, most notably being social interactions. Neuroticism, you hear a lot if you're on SDN, right? That means emotional stability, but in a bad way. You know, neurotic people are moody and they're more likely to be worried, anxious, and frustrated. And lastly, psychoticism is essentially how screwed up your reality is. You know, like how distorted it is. In the end, Hans Eysenck was kind of iffy on believing everyone had psychoticism he didn't think everyone had a screwed up reality, but he definitely agreed that everyone had some ranges of neuroticism and extroversion. And to remember the fact that Hans Eysenck had three categories, just think of how his name has three syllables, Hans Eysenck. All right. So it's a little tough to make a mnemonic for that, but I guess good enough. And the last personality trait is super high yield and pretty popular, and that is the five factor model, aka the big five, aka the ocean model. So this model doesn't have an exact psychologist who officially released it, but if you're going to pin it on someone, it has to be Hippocrates, just because he constructed the four types of temperament, which is like the earliest model that shares a close relationship to the ocean model. Nevertheless, this model is similar to Hans Eysenck because the creators thought that all the traits I'm talking about are in everyone. So the ocean model is my preferred way of remembering it just because it's so easy. So the first letter is O for openness. That just means how fast someone conforms to an idea. The second letter is C, which is for conscientiousness, which just means how much you care, you know, like how disciplined you are. E is extroversion, which like discussed before, is just how much your interests align with doing things with other people. And it's thriving on social interaction. A is agreeableness, which is like how appreciative and kind you are. And lastly, the ocean model uses neuroticism too, the N for neuroticism, which like we said before, it's emotional stability. So now that we talked about the ocean model, we can conclude personality and we're going to jump into mental disorders. So not exactly the smoothest transition, but I don't know, deal with it, right? So mental disorders, you see them everywhere. So dealing with psychological disorders are a huge problem, especially here in the United States where they're A, aren't many free or easy to get to facilities to help aid the general population you know, without an incredible cost, and B, um, there's still a taboo on contacting professionals for medical help. It's both a cultural and an economic issue, and it really affects people's lives. So there's two classification systems for mental disorders, the ICD-10 and the DSM-5. The DSM-5, it's an iconic book for psychologists, and much of the definitions you learn, they're derived from there, the DSM-5. So according to the National Institute of Health, each year, 25% of people meet the criteria for one mental disorder, and 6% of people have a mental illness that's serious and it causes severe disability. So a quarter of Americans have some type of mental disorder, which means it really shouldn't be as taboo as it is, right? So mental disorders have a ton of overlap. For example, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder have a 15% overlap. So it's important for psychiatrists to be able to interpret what the disorder is and diagnose it accordingly. But as of now, I'll just go over the 20 most common categories of disorders and don't be scared by the huge number, you know, 20. You're not made to memorize all the categories and honestly, most of them are pretty much common sense. So off the bat, we got neurodevelopmental disorders. They're, you know, as you can sound it out from the word neurodevelopmental, they have to do with distress or disability due to something that gets messed up in the development of the nervous system. Neurocognitive disorders are a little different. It's the loss of cognition after the nervous system develops. So your development was fine, but something happened afterwards. Sleep-awake disorders, they're the third category, and that's simple. It's just disorders that have to do with sleep, like insomnia or sleep apnea. And then there's anxiety disorders. These are abnormal worries or fears. So this is pretty common, and it includes things like generalized anxiety disorder or panic disorder, which is what causes panic attacks. 
The fifth one is the depressive disorder, which is defined as an abnormally negative mood. Now, be certain of what mood is. Depressive disorder isn't when you have one bad day. Mood is like a long-term emotional state. So depression is when you have a negative long-term emotional state. The sixth one is bipolar disorder, which are abnormal moods. So depressive disorder, they're abnormal negative moods. Bipolar disorders are abnormal moods. So that means bipolar disorders also include abnormally positive moods. The seventh category of uh, mental disorders is the schizophrenia spectrum. That involves distress and disability due to psychosis. So psychosis, it basically means delusions or hallucinations that can't be explained by experiences or culture. The eighth category is trauma or stress-related disorders like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And then there's substance-related disorders which have to do with, surprise, abusing substances. All right, a big one here is personality disorders. That's the 10th category. And they're separated in three clusters. So cluster A, it's odd or eccentric. Cluster B is intense emotional or relationship problems. And C is like those anxious, obsessive, or avoidant personality traits. The way I personally remember it is the words weird, wild, worried. So cluster A is the weird one, like schizotypal disorder. Cluster B, they're the wild and the intense ones like borderline disorder or histrionic disorder. And cluster C includes disorders that have to do with being worried or anxious, like obsessive compulsive disorder or avoidant disorder. All right, so moving away from personality disorders, the 11th category is disruptive disorders. So, you know, impulse control or conduct disorders. Those are all in the 11th category. And those are just, you know, the inability to control uh, inappropriate behaviors. The 12th category is obsessive compulsive disorders. And this is weird because, I mean, obsessive compulsive is a part of cluster C of personality disorders. But whatever, I guess this is a thing too. Then there's somatic symptom disorders. This is cool because it's when you get distressed from symptoms that are similar to something physical, but it's actually all in your mind. So, for example, someone might think they have a stomach ache, but it's actually all in their head and related to stress. Feeding and eating disorders is the 14th on the list, and that's pretty easy. You know, you got the iconic ones, anorexia, bulimia, big problems, especially in the teenage years. Elimination disorders is the 15th. They're disorders in which you can't eliminate the toxic stuff from you. No, I'm not talking about that one friend or that one ex you're mad at. I mean toxic waste, so like the inability to urinate or defecate. All right, the 16th one, dissociative disorders, they're abnormalities in your identity or memory. So when you have multiple personalities or you lost memories of most of your life, those are dissociative disorders. The 17th is sexual dysfunctions, which is sponsored by Viagra. It's abnormalities in performance of sexual activity. 18th, we're almost done here, is gender dysphoria. That's when someone identifies as a different gender. Obviously, it being classified as a mental disorder is a touchy topic here, you know, if it is it considered a mental disorder or not, but don't shoot the messenger. This is just a part of what the DSM-5 says. And then the 19th is the paraphilic disorders. There when you have sexual arousal to unusual stimuli, and there's a whole squad of disorders, you know, in that category of paraphilic. And lastly is other, so stuff that doesn't fit in the 19 other categories, which, you know, after describing every single one, I don't think that's even possible. But yeah, the big ones you got to know from those 20 is anxiety disorder, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia disorders, and personality disorders. All right, so now that we're out of that massive list, let's talk about the biological basis of the four high-yield diseases and disorders you'll see on the MCAT, and those are schizophrenia, depression, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's. So we'll start with schizophrenia and depression, then we'll go on to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So schizophrenia is when you hallucinate or you have delusions. It's pretty scary because it comes up around the late teenage years or the early 20s. So basically the age of a lot of you guys who are listening to this right now, all it needs is a simple trigger like a traumatic event. What a lot of people don't know about schizophrenia and something that's actually popping up a lot in scientific research now is that once someone is afflicted by it, it doesn't only affect their mind, but also the rest of their body. And the gut biome, it's the new buzz in research as of the last few years. And there could be a possible link of mental disorders and gut health, specifically with schizophrenia. But that's something I really can't confidently tell you is a link until the scientific data solidifies on that idea. One really cool publication that came out of Hopkins Med recently about schizophrenia is that people who own dogs when they're young have a significantly smaller chance to be diagnosed with schizophrenia, specifically if you've had a dog before your 13th birthday. And sadly, that correlation isn't there for cats. Again, don't shoot the messenger. 
With schizophrenia, our understanding of what causes it is limited to say the least. I mean, what we notice is that the cerebral cortex is smaller, specifically in the frontal and temporal lobes, along with the fact that there's some wonky stuff going on with the dopamine release and there's some abnormal activity in the mesocortical limbic pathway. So, you know, cerebral cortex gets smaller, specifically the frontal and temporal lobes, and then dopamine release is all wonky, and then there's something going on with the mesocortical limbic pathway. And lastly, known causes of schizophrenia are genetics, of course, and then psychosocial factors, of course. And lastly, physical stress during pregnancy, which is an interesting one. So whatever moms do during pregnancy has drastic effects on the baby's health, personality, and perspective on life. Really interesting stuff. So jumping off schizophrenia, we'll get into depression. So depression is a feeling of hopelessness, loss of interest in activities, etc., There isn't really a clear understanding of the causes, especially not biologically, but what scientists notice is that there is less activity in the frontal lobe and more activity in the limbic lobe, and that makes sense if you think about it. The frontal lobe is a lobe focused on emotional expression and judgment, so they have a dampened emotional expression and poor judgment, whereas the limbic lobe, it's connected to the hypothalamus, which secretes stress hormones like cortisol, and obviously people that are depressed are more stressed than normal. And so it kind of makes sense that their limbic lobe is hyperactive. As of now, just like most things in psychology and sociology, scientists believe depression has both biological and psychosocial factors to the cause. So basically both nature and nurture kind of cause depression. So schizophrenia, depression, you know, checked off both. Now let's talk about some cool stuff, cool in kind of a dark way, but Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So I currently work in the medical field with a lot of the older population, as in 65 and older, and it really opened my eyes to how common both of these diseases are. You know, they're incredibly scary, and they truly make some patients feel as if they're not capable of being productive adults anymore. And you know, when patients mentally give up on life, it's really a sad thing to see. Hopefully, we push harder towards the cures for these diseases, but there's a long road ahead because of just how convoluted treating mental illnesses really is. With Alzheimer's, you start with a loss of cognitive functions and memory, but when it gets extreme, you start losing physical control like bathing, eating, and more. Alzheimer's isn't an overactivity in one space and underactivity in another like depression. It's actually atrophy, which means the decrease in size of certain parts of your brain. So the decrease in your cerebrum starts with the temporal lobe, which is important for memory, but then it goes towards your parietal and frontal lobes. There's three specific abnormalities with Alzheimer's you have to know, and these are pretty high yield in my opinion. First is the loss of neurons. Less neurons means less connections in the brain, and that affects everything depending on where it is in the brain. What we see early in Alzheimer's is the loss of these groups of neurons called the nucleus basalis, which are at the base of the cerebrum and huge for cognitive function. So loss of neurons. Next thing you got to know with Alzheimer's is plaques, specifically amyloid plaques. And these occur in the spaces between cells. But I can't in good conscience tell you that amyloid plaques are a reason for Alzheimer's just because loss of MCAT resources say it is. The amyloid therapeutics in clinical research has been pretty unsuccessful and it basically killed the amyloid hypothesis. You know, a month ago, another study came out that found that the early declines of Alzheimer's occurred before amyloid plaques. So amyloid plaques seem to be just a symptom of Alzheimer's and not a cause. The amyloid hypothesis has been basically completely dismissed by neurologists. But, you know, give it a year or two before anyone can really write the obituary, which also means you got to prepare for it to be an MCAT topic. The third abnormality in Alzheimer's are tangles, which are clumps of protein called tau, T-A-U, tau, Whereas amyloid plaques are outside the cells, these protein tangles clump inside the neurons. But again, with tau tangles and inflammation, nobody really knows if it's just a byproduct of Alzheimer's or a cause. So like I said, Alzheimer's is really interesting because there's so much research going on. But for the MCAT, just focus on the three characteristics of Alzheimer's, that being loss of neurons, amyloid plaques, and tau tangles. And I could go on and on about what the new hypotheses on the causes of Alzheimer's are, but you know... If they're not 100% proven, I don't want to confuse you guys too much. What's interesting is one hypothesis is what they call, quote unquote, diabetes type 3, where your brain both becomes resistant to insulin, which is a type 2 diabetes problem, as well as becomes deficient in insulin, which is a type 1 diabetes problem. And with areas of chronically high blood insulin, amyloid plaques form as a defense of sorts. So that kind of makes sense if that theory is true that amyloid plaques aren't a cause of Alzheimer's. It's actually a defense against 
areas of high blood insulin in your brain. But uh, that diabetes type 3 thing, not really relevant to the MCAT, just an interesting thing that's been popping up in the last year. And, um, you know, hey, if you're planning a career on medicine, might as well be informed with the most up-to-date knowledge, right? So moving on from Alzheimer's, we'll get into Parkinson's. You know, whereas Alzheimer's affected the mind first and then affected motor functions later, Parkinson's is the opposite. So you get tremors, you get bad balance, abnormal walking and more. But later patients start losing autonomous functions like defecation, urination and more. With Parkinson's, there are significant changes that can be seen visibly. There is lightness in the substantia nigra, which is due to the loss of dopaminergic neurons. So the substantia nigra, it's a part of the basal ganglia, which has many roles in motor functions and also other mental functions. The substantia nigra also projects out to the striatum, where there is a loss of dopaminergic neurons, but also these things called Lewy bodies in those dopaminergic neurons. Those contain a protein called alpha-synuclein. That protein is perfectly fine in the brain, but when it starts clustering like it does in Parkinson's disease, then you get a problem. So we lose dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra, and then we also get Lewy bodies in the striatum. That's what Parkinson's is. So like I mentioned with schizophrenia, you know how I said researchers are currently seeing if the gut biome affects the likelihood of getting schizophrenia? There's also something similar to that with Parkinson's. In the last year, the theory of gut health correlating to Parkinson's has been picking up steam. There was actually a study where they saw the disease migrate from the gut to both the brain and the heart of lab rats via the peripheral nerves. So you might be like, what is the it that is traveling, right? Well, it seems to be those alpha-synuclein protein clusters, which, like I said, is the hallmark of both Parkinson's and Lewy body dementia. So remember I mentioned uh, Lewy bodies, um, those are in the dopaminergic neurons, they're like clusters of proteins. Well, there's another disease called Lewy body dementia. Lewy body dementia, you know, it shares similarities with Parkinson's, but when it's extreme, Lewy body dementia leads to extreme muscle rigidity. So basically there's a promising lead that there's a correlation between your gut biome and your likelihood of getting Parkinson's or Lewy body dementia. And I don't know about you guys, but personally, I find that really fascinating how we're kind of on the other side of this. What I mean is we're getting huge breakthroughs in this field and it's less mysterious and less confusing as it was before. You know, there's finally like a light at the end of the tunnel type of thing. Nothing is set in stone, of course, and I'm not telling you that Parkinson's is only about the gut biome, but these theories are really picking up steam in the scientific community. I will say, though, that it makes perfect logical sense that the GI tract is the start of loss of these diseases, especially knowing the GI tract is one continuous tract of surface area that is exposed to the external environment while also being much more permeable than skin. You know, it kind of seems logical that imbalances in the gut biome could lead to illnesses that spread way further than just your gut. So keep these interesting theories in mind when you think about disorders of the body, but make sure to understand the biological factors of all these illnesses. So with schizophrenia, it's a decrease in cerebral cortex size, abnormalities in the release of dopamine, and abnormalities in the mesocortical limbic pathway. In depression, it's a decrease in activity in the frontal lobe and an increase in activity in the limbic lobe. In Alzheimer's, it's the atrophy of brain tissue and abnormalities including loss of neurons, amyloid plaques, and tau tangles. And lastly, with Parkinson's, it's defined as the loss of dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra and striatum, as well as Lewy bodies. So we're all done with the biology for now. We're going to go back to social psychology. Like I've said before, the AMC doesn't make smooth jumps from one field to another. So we're going to go from learning about biology of things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So now we're going to talk about conformity and groupthink. So conformity, it's simply a fancy way of saying peer pressure. You know, you bring your beliefs and behaviors towards the group norms. We even conform when it's something bad. So carrying with the mention of peer pressure, if a kid is peer pressured to try drugs or alcohol, they're conforming, but in a negative way. Now, it's important to remember the two reasons why people conform, informative conformity and normative conformity. So let's just break it down. Informative conformity has something to do with information, right? Informative information. That's correct. Informative conformity is when you look for guidance in the group because you yourself don't know. You want information that you basically don't have. Then there's the normative conformity. That's when you do have the information you do know it's right and wrong, but you do something to be quote unquote normal or to avoid social rejection. So informative conformity is when you kind of don't know and you just follow the lead. Normative is when you do know, but you don't want to be socially rejected. 
And there's two high yield terms of conformity, and that is group polarization and group think. Group think is when the harmony of the group matters a lot. It matters even more than actually analyzing the problem. Group polarization is when the original group idea gets amplified and it pairs with confirmation bias. You know, you believe any view that aligns with your views and you ignore any criticism. Now, there's two other terms people confuse with conformity, and that's compliance and obedience. Obedience is how we obey authority, and it has to do, you know, primarily with authority. Conformity has to do with group norms. So conformity is really everyone in the group. Obedience is like the higher level people of a group. And then, like I mentioned, there's compliance. Compliance doesn't have to do with authority or group norms. It's what we do to avoid punishment and to get rewards. So you go along with things without asking why, and it goes away once reward or punishment goes away. Compliance is a subsection of obedience, and an example of compliance is like paying taxes. You know, you're not paying taxes because everyone else is paying taxes. You're paying taxes to avoid punishment of not paying taxes. Another form of obedience and conformity is internalization. So when an idea or belief gets believed so much that you envelop it into your own set of values, you are internalizing it, right? And internalization, it's actually stronger than conformity. So conformity is siding with group norms, but internalization is actually identifying with it. So a lot bigger of a deal. Now, I would like to say the most important thing to take away from this segment is that normative social influence versus informative social influence. Like I said before, informative social influence is when you think that other members of the group have more information than you, so you follow them. Normative social influence is when you abide by what the group says because you don't want to be, quote unquote, that guy, right? You don't want to be the person that sways the group opinion and has a risk of getting socially rejected. So normative social influence, it's really tied to groupthink. All right, so now we got over that, we're going to talk about three iconic studies, Ash, Milgram, and Zimbardo. Ash, Milgram, and Zimbardo are basically the holy trinity of conformity and obedience. And honestly, I think it's impossible to talk about conformity and not mention Ash's conformity studies. So no, not Ash from Pokemon. It's actually a more boring Ash. And all he did was make the Ash line studies. So he didn't have Pikachu or anything like that, sadly. So uh, Solomon Ash, he was this guy who belonged to the Gestalt gang of psychologists. And that sounds cooler than it is. Basically, the Gestalt gang thought you can't really understand psychology and humans piece by piece. They can only be understood as a whole. So Ash had this experiment where you get a line, like a literal line on a piece of paper. Oh, and by the way, everyone had the same line. But anyways, he pulled up three lines on the board and asked everyone in the classroom which line on the board matched with the line on the paper. That should be pretty simple, right? So you just match the line on the board with the line on the paper. But there was a twist. So everyone in the classroom but you in this scenario was a Confederate. I'm not saying there were Southern people in the Civil War. Confederate is just a fancy way to say actors. So everyone in the room but you is an actor and you don't know that. You just think that they pulled a random group of people, right? So first go around, everyone chooses the right answer. You know, they align the line on their paper with the line on the board. Second go around, same thing, everyone chooses the right answer. And third go around, they ask to correspond the new line on their paper with the comparison lines on the board. And all the Confederates, you know, aka actors, gave the wrong answer. So at this point, you're probably dumbfounded. You're like, what is going on? Because it's a simple experiment, right? But if everyone chose a certain answer, then they have to be correct, right? So um, it turns out 75% of people caved in and chose the wrong answer to fit in. So what is that? Normative or informative social influence? Well, when Ash asked the participants when the experiment was over, the participants were actually pretty split. So some said they only caved to the group thinking because they thought the group knew something that the participant didn't. And what is that? Informative social influence. Others admitted they only caved in and chose a wrong answer because they didn't want social rejection, which is normative social influence. So the Ash line studies really taught us a lot about how people conform, even in something small like a test about lines. But another icon in conformity and psychology as a whole is the PTSD-inducing Milgram studies. So keep in mind, this occurred in 1963, and even then people were like, all right, bro, that's way too much. But uh, Milgram, he got his job downgraded at Harvard. He was unable to get tenure at Harvard, which is a big deal. But, I mean, you know, the fact that we talked about Milgram's conformity experiments almost 60 years later, you know, like who won in the end, Harvard or Milgram? So what was all the fuss about? Why did he get his job downgraded? Why were people up in arms? 
While it started from the beginning, Milgram advertised to join a study about memory and learning. And I guess he was right away, but he was really trying to see how people obeyed authority figures. So there were learners who were all hooked up to these electrodes and they'd get shocked if they chose a wrong answer. And the shock amplifies more and more for every wrong answer. And then there's a teacher who's in a separate room entirely. Well, the twist is the learner was actually an actor and the shocks weren't real. But all the participants who joined based on the ad were the quote unquote teachers who would administer the shock to the learner, a.k.a. the actor. So the experiment goes on. The learner says some wrong answers and continuously gets shocked by the participant, a.k.a. the teacher. After some more wrong answers, the learner would start screaming and they'd start begging to make the shock stop. But the participants were instructed to keep it going. Even when the actor in the other room begged about having a heart condition, the authority figure would still make the participants push the shock further and further. Finally, the learner stopped responding and it was complete silence. And since the learner was in another room from the teacher with no connection besides sound, the participant at this point thought they'd, you know, killed the learner. So you might be like, oh, well, if it was me, I would have honestly stopped it earlier. You know, that's ridiculous. You know, I would have stopped it when the learner begged for it to stop. Well, actually, the majority of people, 65%, in fact, shocked all the way to the end. And even when the actor cried out about their heart condition, 63% of people still shocked all the way until the end, which is the, you know, assumed death. So clearly, people are obedient to authority figures. So with the Milgram experiment, there's a lot to unpack. If you were a participant being debriefed after this and came to an understanding of what you had done, you'd be in total shock. But as humans, we tend to try to pass the blame onto others. You know, that's pretty natural. So the participants, they'd claim that if the victims had just answered the questions right, they wouldn't have been shocked. That's what we call the just world phenomenon. The just world phenomenon basically says you get what's coming for you. So if you do things right, you get rewards. But if you do things wrong, you get the punishments. And the just world phenomenon is pretty common with those who experience traumatic events. Another way the participants offset the blame was just being like, oh, yeah, the authority figures made me do it. You know, some things for you, the listener, to think about are, number one, self-serving bias, and number two, the fundamental attribution error. You might think, like, you never do anything like that, and there's something inherently bad about the participants that caused them to act the way they did, and you're fundamentally attributing their actions to their personality, not the situation. And that term comes up a lot, the fundamental attribution error. It's when you blame someone's actions on the person themselves, not the situation that they're in. Alrighty, and the last of the trio after Ash and Milgram is the Zimbardo Prison Experiment, also known as the Stanford Prison Experiment. This is the most popular of the three conformity theories. I mean, they even made a movie about it, and it actually did pretty well. You know, something like 84% on Rotten Tomatoes, something crazy like that. Anyways, check that out if you want to, but if you'd rather rewatch The Office for the 13th time, honestly, I don't blame you. Zimbardo did his experiment a little less than a decade after Milgram. He did it in 1971. Milgram did it in 1963. So Zimbardo, what he wanted to do was he wanted to see how people act and conform to their roles. But he and all the participants actually got so caught up in their make-believe world that everyone had to stop the experiment early. Unlike Milgram, who, remember, he tricked the participants into thinking the study was about memory and learning. Zimbardo told the Stanford students straight up what the experiment would be about, but even then, the experiment didn't really follow all the sampling and ethical rules needed for a psychological study. I mean, if you know about the experiment, there's obvious mental abuse that happened, but there's also selection bias. I mean, who willingly signs up for a two-week prison experiment? It really isn't random because these are all guys who are interested in conforming to some degree. Anyways, so Zimbardo basically had 18 male students randomly assigned to be guards or prisoners, and everyone knew it was randomly assigned. The prisoners would be quote-unquote arrested and put into areas that were separated from the outside world. And the randomly chosen guards, on the other hand, got cool sunglasses and a baton, and they were told that they could do basically everything but physically harm the prisoners. So as you can assume, a ton of verbal damage. And literally from the first day, it started getting out of hand. The prisoners started rebelling, and the guards were fighting back. But there came a point where the guards actually saw the prisoners as a real threat, and they threw the whole no physical harm rule out the window, and they started using fire extinguishers on them and forced them to strip down. Pretty insane stuff, but it gets worse. They threw the prisoners in solitary confinement for 36 hours. Just a reminder, these prisoners are literally just normal, mentally sound Stanford students that are now going through intense mental abuse. 
Well, after 36 hours in solitary confinement, you can imagine how the prisoners began to mentally break down, but it just got worse from there. So after the solitary confinement, the prisoners went on a hunger strike and the guards, to establish more power, forced the prisoners to exercise, forced the prisoners to repeat their prison numbers and stop their bathroom privileges. They did a bit more too, but pretty insane stuff. Zimbardo, he joined in on the fun too. Um, he was a quote unquote prison warden. And, you know, he was messing around with the prisoners and all that stuff until his girlfriend came in on the sixth day and was like, yo, Zimbardo, are you actually insane? What are you doing? And she convinced him to stop it. But a very important thing happened. By this point, half the prisoners quit the experiment because they couldn't mentally handle it. But exactly zero guards left. Both were conforming to their certain roles. But it was those that confirmed to the role of the person in power that stayed in that conformed role. So when they debriefed after the experiment, the guards threw out the same old just world phenomenon that there was for Milgram's experiment. They were like, oh, if the prisoners just followed rules and weren't troublemakers, it wouldn't have gone as bad as it did. So the just world phenomenon kind of coincides with cognitive dissonance. They knew what they were doing was wrong, but to make sure they didn't have a negative opinion of themselves, they added information to the story. That information being that the prisoners put it upon themselves. We also see internalization here. If you remember what I said earlier, internalization is the deepest type of conformity because you internalize all those group beliefs into your own actions and your own beliefs. The guards genuinely believed that the prisoners got what they deserved, and the guards at that point weren't just conforming to the group, they actually believed it. So after hearing all that, you know, looking back, although Ash isn't as cool as Ash from Pokemon, he's a lot better than Milgram and Zimbardo because he didn't scar his participants for life. With Ash, Milgram, and Zimbardo, we can derive some key things about obedience and conformity. First is that size matters. I mean group size. Get your mind out the gutter. We learned that groups of three to five bring the highest level of conformity. Another thing is that internal factors play a huge role in conformity. You don't want to be a hypocrite. So you'll stick with something you said earlier rather than admit it was wrong later. I mean, just look at the prison guards in Zimbardo's experiment. Authority also matters a lot. So with both Zimbardo and Milgram, it was in a university setting. The participants respected that. They felt as though the authority was a big deal because he or she was from a well-respected university. Like I said, Milgram was with Harvard and Zimbardo was with Stanford. And lastly, depersonalization is a thing. So when victims are made to seem less human, people are able to obey orders more. So for Milgram, that meant having the teacher isolated from the learner when giving shocks. And with Zimbardo, that meant making the prisoners seem like savages to the guards. So when you make them less human, when you kind of isolate them, people are willing to do crazier stuff. What's interesting is that all these studies were done in America and they still showed high conformity and obedience rates. Cultures such as the US, Canada, and Europe really pride themselves on individual achievements. So people are less likely to conform, um, whereas collective cultures like Japan and China are the opposite. There's lots of normative social influence in some parts over there where the group matters a lot, and that has both positives and negatives. You know, pe people care for each other's well-being, but also non-conformers can be socially rejected. And fair warning, that example isn't my personal opinion. You know, these examples are straight out of psychology books, and I don't mean to put a blanket statement on any country. On a similar note to conformity and groupthink is the bystander effect, and that is super relevant. Have you ever seen something bad happen to someone and you wait for someone else to jump in before you do? So why didn't you jump in first? With others in the group, we're just less inclined to jump in, and a huge reason is the diffusion of responsibility. When there are others around you while something bad is happening, you feel less personal responsibility to help. If I saw someone punch another guy in front of me and there's nobody else, I'd feel inclined to help, but if 30 people saw some guy punch another stranger, people would look around at each other waiting for someone else to assist. An iconic example of this is the death of Kitty Genovese, where 38 people watched from their apartment windows as Kitty was stabbed, raped, and robbed over 30 minutes and nobody came to help. The crowd conceals a person's identity. That's called de-individuation. So when everyone is, you know, maybe rushing for Black Friday, it seems like everyone's going crazy and... It's because people think if everyone's going crazy, they can go crazy too without many people noticing. To wrap up this episode, I know we went over a lot, but just to refresh your memory, here are some of the most high-yield things we talked about. So first are the six theories of personality. There's the psychoanalytic theory with Freud, humanistic theory with Carl Rogers. There's the biological theory, the behaviors theory, which had Skinner and Pavlov, the trait theory, and the social cognitive theory with the Bobo doll experiment by Albert Bandura. 
Then there was Alport, who hypothesized about the three categories of traits, cardinal traits, central traits, and secondary traits, which are stacked ranked in that order. Then there was the ocean model or the five-factor model. It was another personality trait theory. O is for openness, C is for conscientiousness, E is for extroversion, A is for agreeableness, and N, which was for neuroticism. Remember, neuroticism is like emotional instability. So we also went over the 20 categories of mental disorders, but something you had to focus on is the clusters for personality disorders. So there was cluster A, cluster B, and cluster C, which are separated into three ways, weird, wild, and worried. Cluster A is weird, cluster B is wild, and cluster C is worried. And then schizophrenia, depression, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's. Schizophrenia is having hallucinations or delusions. Depression is a feeling of hopelessness and loss of interest in activities. Alzheimer's is the loss of cognitive functions and memory, and Parkinson's is when you get tremors, bad balance, abnormal walking, and more. And we also touched on Lewy body dementia. It's also associated with the abnormal deposits of alpha-synuclein in the brain, just like Parkinson's. Those abnormal deposits of alpha-synuclein are literally called Lewy bodies. And Lewy body dementia actually has pretty similar symptoms to Parkinson's. The biggest difference is Parkinson's, the physical disorders happen at least a year before cognitive disorders. In Lewy body dementia, it kind of all just happens at the same time. I'm pretty sure I drilled informative social influence and normative social influence into your head by saying it a thousand times. But informative social influence is when you follow the group because you think they know better. Normative is when you follow the group because you don't want to get socially rejected. Then we had groupthink, which is where harmony of the group matters more than analyzing the problem. So you follow what the group says. And then we have group polarization, which is when the original group idea gets amplified and it gets even crazier. Then there are the terms conformity, obedience, compliance, and internalization. Conformity is abiding by group norms. Obedience is abiding by authority. Compliance is abiding to avoid punishment. And internalization is truly believing a group idea or belief. Finally, just recently, we talked about the three big studies on obedience and conformity, Ash, Milgram, and Zimbardo. Ash was the line study guy with the actors. Milgram was the electric shock guy with the actors. And Zimbardo was the prison experiment guy. Then boom, last thing we just talked about was Kitty Genovese and the bystander effect. That's also pretty high yield. So in this episode, we went over a decent amount. You know, we went over personality, mental disorders, we went over conformity, groupthink, bystander effect, all that stuff. You know, we got just a bit more before we end with Foundational Concept 7. So next episode will definitely be a bit shorter than this one. But I hope you enjoy this episode. And shout out to everyone who emailed me or left reviews. Um, it really means the world to know that you guys are enjoying it. And it pushes me to do some more. And if you listen this far and you're somehow not annoyed at my voice and you happen to be listening on the Apple Podcast app, if you could drop a review, that would be awesome. You know, just talk about how angelic my voice is. No, I'm just joking. On another note, my apologies for the late episodes. I've been pretty caught up with work, volunteering, research, and interviews as of late. And these episodes take a decent amount of time between the research, the note-taking, the recording, and the editing. But, you know, I enjoy making it, so don't worry. I'll keep them coming. Just be patient. And thank you for everyone for listening to episode five of Grow Series and MCAT Review Podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please email me at growseriesmcat at gmail.com. That's G-R-O Series MCAT at gmail.com. Have a good one and see you guys on the next episode. <laughs>